Okay, good morning. Let's go to Romans again. And there should be a sheet on your table that says Romans 5, goal and purpose of suffering. So anybody need a sheet? There should be a sheet on your table that says Romans 5, 3 to 5, the goal and purpose of suffering. Anybody? Going once, going twice? I apologize for getting started late. Um, it's just what it is. It was one of those mornings and had a lot of things to do. And thank you for your patience. Just a reminder, ladies' aid is, or pardon me, ladies' Bible study is tonight at six. Um, we're studying the Ten Commandments. If you're interested in that, we're doing in depth, and we'll do five through six tonight. Commandments five through six. I'm enjoying that immensely. Um, what else? Let's see. I've got youth group after church today. So what, where are we going? Which park? Nolan. Where are we going? Mahoney? Mahoney. Very good. We've got a Bible study and all that jazz there. Is it Platte River? Okay, Platte River. Thank you. Like I said, it's been a busy morning. I need to take a deep breath. So if you're in Romans, you need to go to Romans 5. We've observed that Paul, in his, in his first few chapters, he magnifies sin. No one is an exception to the rule that you're a sinner. You can't say, well, you know, Reverend, I... I'm not perfect, but I'm not like Denny Barnes or I'm not like Brad Bornemeyer, you know what I mean? No, we're all equally sinners. Uh, the cemetery, of course, bears witness to the fact that the wages of sin is death and no one, no one is exempt. So he magnifies sin, not to just do a na 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 but rather to show the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and dies for sinners. So thanks be to God. Seriously, folks, you should really be thankful for this, that God through the Ten Commandments, shows you your sinful condition. No joke, because as a pastor, I deal with people all the time. I'm not, not necessarily talking about you folks here, but I deal with people all the time that when I confront them in things that are not pleasing to God, they don't want to hear it. They don't give thanks that, really, I've, I've sinned in this matter, I've done what is not pleasing to God, and then they object and they preach their own sermon. We know better. We know that when we sin... We are thankful to God that he reveals this sin to us through the commandments. For what reason? Well, two, to tell the truth. And as Paul says in Romans 3, so that we'll shush up. Our mouths will be silenced, we're held accountable to God, and then he shows us our sin. And then the second purpose is then to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. So Paul magnifies our sin so that he magnifies and extols Jesus all the more as the savior of sinners who shed his blood on the cross for our salvation. And again, one final point on this before we go to Romans 5. <laughs> I love this. Paul in Romans 3, as I just mentioned, shushes our mouth, holds us accountable to God. It's God does this so that we then have perfectly passive ears. You realize that the ear is passive. It only receives sound waves that go in it. The ear is not active. The ear is passive. It receives what it gets. Make sense? My mouth, on the other hand, it's very active. My nose, you know, all five senses, but touch, you're doing, so, but the, but hearing, that, that sense of the five senses is passive. So again, the Lord uses the commandments to shush our mouths, which are very active, and give excuses, you know, it's all that, kind of, well, you know, it's the way, you know, no, be quiet so that your ears then will receive the preaching of the gospel, that your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. Now, Paul continues in Romans 5, and I'm almost there, <clears throat> as I continue to try and take deep breaths. 
Yes, it is recording. Very good. All right, so we're good. Romans 5, we, we, I, 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 I did a real quick flyby of those first two verses in chapter 5. I want to review those again. Look at verse 1. Since we have been justified through faith, again, Paul has been hitting hard that you're saved only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith justifies because it trusts in Jesus. Make sense? So, again, faith counts before God because, because of what faith trusts, namely Jesus. So, we have peace with God, or we've been justified through faith. We have peace with God. And then verse 2, through whom we have gained access by this faith. Again, I told you last week that in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and you can read Leviticus for that. And all the rest of Israel had to stand outside. The New Testament, Jesus is the great high priest, and through holy baptism and our faith in him, 1 Peter 2 says that we are all priests. And now we all have access to the throne room, if you will, of God, the Holy of Holies, through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's why, we, again, we design our church buildings the way we do. You have a nave where everybody sits. You have an altar, okay? And you come to communion where? Not in your pews, but you come to communion at the altar, which illustrates this point, that you have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Another way to illustrate this is you can pray to God and enter into His throne room anytime, anywhere, anyplace when you pray, right? Through faith in Jesus. Make sense? So because now in the New Testament, Jesus the great high priest, and we believe in Him, we are all part of a holy and royal priesthood, and now we all have access to God's heavenly throne room. So when you come to church, you're in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. And the architecture of the church tries to illustrate that. That's why we have angels on the altar adoring the crucified Christ, which is trying to teach us that you are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and where He is, you're in heaven. That's why the angels are there. That's Hebrews 12. So any questions about that quick review? Please. Well, let me, let, me an, let me answer that question this way, Mike. This is the first time in the history of the world, I'll talk about modern history from like the 1500s on, where, where healthy people were quarantined. That has never happened in the history of the world. Never. Which leads us to be very suspicious, okay? So, okay, you have to ask questions about that. Why were, why were healthy people quarantined? It's always been the sick who've been quarantined or the most uh, vulnerable, right? Secondly, if you look at the history of the church, when there were pandemics in the past, church services continued to be held. The church still met. That didn't mean you were forced to go. If you had, if you had issues, health issues, and you didn't want to go. I mean, think about this, the bubonic plague. I'm going to mention a guy's name. I'm doing this off at the top of my head. He's got a lot of hymns in our hymnal that he wrote. Oh, I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. But this pastor, I'll remember it later, tomorrow probably or whenever. But uh, Tracy, do you remember? Gerhard. No, what goes in Gerhard? I'll remember it. In any event, Paul Gerhardt. Paul Gerhardt. Not Gerhard, but Paul Gerhardt, a Lutheran pastor in Germany during the bubonic plague. He stayed put, had services. Now, I'd have to look this up to be sure, so I'm in a ballpark it. So have mercy on me if my figures are too high or too low. Okay, so have mercy on me. 
But this was, a, this was a village, and the church served the entire village so, and the surrounding area. During bubonic plague, this guy had hundreds of funerals per month. But the services were continued to be held. Now, there were questions about, okay, so like if you lived in Wittenberg, Germany, and you got bubonic plague everywhere, should we flee and go somewhere else? And the church said, absolutely, absolutely. You're, you're free to go somewhere else to be safe. But the people who stayed and the pastors who stayed, they continued to, the pastors still continued to care for these people. And if the people wanted to, they could come to church. So we have to be careful here. What I'm trying to say not very well is we have to be careful here, is that the Christian church should never be told to never have a church service, ever, never. The sad thing, I think, is this pandemic is the church gave in a little bit too easily. For the first time, I think, in the history of Christianity, the Roman Catholic Church quit having masses. I think, I think I'm accurate on that. that and, and usually when Rome does things, then everybody else follows, and the Protestants immediately followed. So a precedent now has been set, and, and of course, the devil loves this, and what I mean by this is we hear the language of love, you gotta, you gotta love people, so therefore don't go to church. On the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, okay, because we have a command from the Lord, right? Okay, now on the other hand, I'll get to you in just a second. On the other hand, there are times, and we made this available for the sake of love, and because we didn't know exactly what was going on, you know, when it first started in the pandemic, we said, all right, we'll obey the government, and so what did we have? We had half-hour services when they restricted it to 10 people at a time, and Kuhlman was here at, what, 8 o'clock, was it? And we went till one o'clock and I couldn't even go to the bathroom because it was half an hour, boom, next. So we, we made sure that we had services for people who were willing and able to come. Now, if you weren't able and were afraid, no problem. We videotaped it, okay? So we made that available. And if you noticed on the website, I also made available, I don't do it anymore because the pandemic's over. I made available a service for you that you could do at home with your family. Did you know that? Pay attention to our website, folks because <laughs> I put stuff on there. So I made that available. So we did a both and, okay? Now, does that answer your concerns? Well, I just was thinking about the fact that they were sometimes forcing people not to go to church. You couldn't go to church. That's correct. And against that, of course, is against the Constitution, and it's against our Lord and what He mandates. Yeah, see, this is the thing. In, I'm just talking, strictly speaking now, from the Constitution. We have a freedom of... Okay, so there you have it. And there was, there was a Missouri Senate pastor, I forget what state it was, but uh, they continued to have services and they were obeying the restrictions, but the police came. Rhonda, you were going to make a point? Yeah, and, then that, and so responsible citizens are going to make sure that this gets held accountable, et cetera, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So here's, here's the bottom line, I think, to help us diagnose things, generally speaking. When anybody, I don't care who it is, I'll, I'll use an example of a parent. So let's say that Mike Stroy tells his son Nolan to go to the bar in Murdoch and steal a six-pack and get him a pack of camels and steal them. Now, on the one hand, he can't do it legally, right, because he's not old enough. 
But he, asks, he, he tells him, he commands his son. And he'll say, now you know, Nolan, the fourth commandment, don't you? Honor your father and mother. Now you better honor your father and you'd better go do what I say. Now again, Mike would never do this, of course, but you understand the point. Nolan would say, no, Dad, I will not do that. I refuse to do it. And Mike will say, the commandment says. And Nolan will say, yeah, but you're forgetting another thing, that there are other authorities I need to honor. And so you're asking me to break a commandment, and I'm not going to do it. And you may suffer for that, but nonetheless, you're not going to disobey the Word of God. So again, if anybody, whether it's a parent, grandparent, a pastor, <laughs> or the governing authorities, if they tell you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, you politely say no. And we have this example in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5, for example. I can give you tons of them, but Acts 5 is one example. And you can look this up on your own. The apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ preached publicly that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And the officials, the public officials, the Jewish Sanhedrin and all their cronies. Now remember, the Jewish Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jewish country. And they commanded the apostles not to preach Jesus anymore. What did the apostles say? We must obey God rather than men. And they simply suffered the consequences. They were jailed, they were persecuted, and martyred. You understand the distinction here on when, when, there is, when we don't obey? We don't take up guns. We don't go to the streets and burn. We simply say, no, we will obey God, not men. And then we will suffer the consequences. Now, you have the classic example of this of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is totally innocent, totally innocent, right? and was judged to be a criminal worthy of execution. And who did he trust? Well, let me back this up. Remember, Peter tried to save him. Peter took his sword out when Jesus was arrested and cut off the high priest's servant's ear, name's Malchus. What did Jesus say to Peter? Way to go, bud. Way to go. Let's enlist more. Let's get a militia going. What did Jesus say? Put it away. You, you live by it, you'll die by it. And Jesus then simply suffered the persecution, and how did, he, how, did he, how did he finally end it? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And what else? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Let me tell you, folks, that gives witness to what Christianity is all about right there. I hope that's helpful for you. Because in America, we are now tempted sorely. And by the way, for the sake of the discussion here, can I continue or do you want me to stop? Maybe you want me to stop. All right. We live in a country now where we are very tempted as faithful Christians to take up arms. I'm, I'm begging you, don't do that. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not saying, now don't misunderstand here. If, if you own weapons, if you own guns, okay, you legally can have them. But I'm begging you, don't pull a David Koresh. Don't do that. If they come to arrest you because you are a Christian, and if you're innocent, just simply take, just suffer it. Suffer it. Suffer it. I know you have a, a right as a citizen, but if you take arms and you're violent, this plays right into the devil's hands. They'll say, see, told you that the, the, these, these kinds of people. And your witness then will be contrary. So what you do will be contrary to what you say and think and believe. So be very careful about this. Now, Having said all that, well, they want to burn our 
then we suffer it. Absolutely, we just simply suffer it. And we make plans to meet elsewhere underground. Now, of course, what we could do, we could, we could be like Paul, right? And we could appeal to the governing authorities because we are citizens of a country and we should not be persecuted in such a way. And we can make our appeal. But what I'm trying to say is stay away from violence. Well, sure, of course we would. But you understand my point. I said we are very tempted to take up arms and be violent. And I'm begging us, don't do that. Okay. There was another hand. Where was it? Yes. With Marxism, which is basically what you're talking about, it's people going against that's what they Sergei Nakamakaya, who was basically his he was on steroids, Marx. Marx was this, Sergei was a steroid Marx. And he was preaching or teaching the only way to do this is to cause this division. You have to have that division to tip this over because once we can do that, whatever you want, racial or Well, and we are praying. I hope the Sunday morning prayers have set an example for all of you and how to pray at home and privately. So we pray for our authorities, no matter you like them or not, you pray for them. Whether they're, whether they're faithful or not, you pray for them. Uh, keep in mind that Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Romans, when we get to Romans chapter, um, it's chapter 13, and Peter, of course, in one of his epistles, they, they tell us to pray for those in authority. Now, you know who was, who was Caesar at the time when Paul wrote Romans 13 and said, pray for those in authority and submit to them. Well, 1 Timothy 2 is pray for the kings and all those in authority. And then Romans 13 is submit to those in authority for their God's servants. Who was, who was emperor at the time? Nero. And what was Nero doing? Hunting Christians down and murdering them. Because he set Rome on fire and he used Christians as the scapegoat. Sound familiar? This, this is, seriously folks, we are living in similar times where the authorities are going, are, are already now calling Christians the enemies of the state. Uh, I, have you seen it? I, this is kind of just flying by the seat of my pants here, but I've noticed in watching football here this weekend and more golf than anything, watching President's Cup, but uh, I noticed the commercial that uh, NBC is pushing Law and Order this week, the episodes that are coming this week. Have you noticed what's the episode, upcoming episode? Remember, Law and Order, for decades, always uses things out of the, out of the headlines, right? Have you noticed they're new? They're new? And this, this is to my point. The, the, the commercial is, is it that some woman takes a, uh, an underage teenager who's pregnant over across state lines to get an abortion. And uh, the best I can guess from the commercial is, is that the state in which she lived Abortion was illegal, and therefore they're going to prosecute the person who took her across state lines as a murderer. Now, it's going to be interesting to see how this gets played in Law and Order. I think, I think it's safe to guess that this will be a Christian worldview versus a satanic worldview, and the Christian worldview will be demonized. So if you see that episode, tell me about it. I'm not going to watch it, but I saw it on TV. Now, this sets us all up for Romans 5. So here you have it, verse uh, 2, end of verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now verse 3, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering does things. I've said this as a pastor for decades, when people suffer, God doesn't waste it. So 
We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, character produces hope, and hope doesn't disappoint because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He's given us. Now remember the distinction I made last week? We rejoice in what kind of sufferings? Do we rejoice in this kind of suffering? That Brent Kuhlman goes and steals, and then he gets arrested and gets put in jail. Do we rejoice in sufferings that we commit because of our sins? No, we do not. So for example, let me use, my, let me use myself as another example. So if Kuhlman drinks alcohol by the leader every day, every day, leader after leader every day, and then starts to turn yellow, and then is going to die of, you know what, alcohol poisoning and liver disease, that's a suffering, isn't it? But whose fault is that? That's Kuhlman's fault, and that we don't rejoice in that. So you understand. So what kind of suffering do we rejoice in? Suffering in which we are not responsible because of our sin, as we've just talked about. In other words, remember I preached a sermon not too long ago, it was just a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, was one of the verses, remember this? Because everybody mis they, they misunderstand that verse, where it talks about visiting those in prison. Hebrews 13 starts about love one another, brethren, love one another. And one of the ways that brothers and sisters in Christ love one another is you go visit people who are in prison. Now people read that verse and they think, okay, so now I'm supposed to go to Lincoln and go to the state pen and start visiting everybody there. No, the context of Hebrews is there are Christians who are being arrested simply because they are what? Christian. And we have to help these brothers and sisters and go visit them in prison and try and take care of them. So here's an example of rejoicing in a suffering. You believe in Jesus and somebody's going to persecute you or discriminate against you because you're a Christian. This is what we rejoice in. Matthew 5, <coughs> pardon me. Remember Matthew 5, the Beatitudes? After the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are you when people do what? Speak evil against you on account of me. He says, rejoice in that. That's Matthew 5. So you're picking up what the Bible's throwing down here? Now take the sheet that I've given you. We made those distinctions that I just reviewed with you. And so, let's go to page 2. We were on page 2 last week. So we had great joy this past Palm Sunday when we had 10 confirmands, young people, confess their faith in the triune God and they promised that they would suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from the Christian faith. So we pick it up there on that second full paragraph on page 2 where it says, I believe. See that? So I believe it's quite safe to say that the church in our day is rapidly coming to a crossroad, namely a place of decision in the United States. The church is going to have to choose between compromise with the culture. By the way, again, how do you diagnose if things are going right or wrong in the church? Here's how you diagnose. When the church wants to be relevant. I'm going to say this so you'll never forget it. When the church wants to be relevant with the culture, the church will be unfaithful. And so we have a choice. We're either going to compromise with the culture or we're going to bear the cross of Jesus, which means we're going to suffer for being a Christian. Between the way of worldly success and relevance, 
and the way of suffering for Jesus' sake, between being a religious country club for the comfortable and being the church founded on Jesus Christ crucified. Let's not forget that Jesus warned his would-be followers, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, when he said those words, there was a man who heard those words and later was ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was it? Peter. Remember that? So Jesus said these words to, the, to his church, to his 12, and those who followed him. And then you had one of them who became ashamed of Jesus. And I'm going I'm to emphasize how this, uh, we think we're better than Peter. We're not. We're not. But what I'm trying to do now, I'm going to cut to the chase here. Why is, why is Peter's shame of the Lord Jesus Christ included in the New Testament, where he denied Jesus three times? Why is that included? Because I'm telling you, if I'm Peter, and remember, I'm reading from Mark, and where did Mark learn all the stuff that Mark put in his gospel? From whom did he learn this? Peter, in Rome! In Rome! And if I'm Peter, and if I know Mark is writing down what I'm teaching him, if I'm Peter, I'm saying, now you make sure that you edit certain parts out like my denial of the Lord Jesus Christ because I don't want to be embarrassed. But, so why does Peter make sure that Mark includes this in his gospel? Anybody? While I get a swig, Rhonda? Oh, you hit it. Brilliant. Brilliant. Absolutely. So I'm going to repeat it in case you didn't hear what Rhonda said. To show, I'm going to put it in my own words now. To show what a savior he is, Jesus is, for what kind of sinners like Peter. If Peter can be repented in faith, so can you and so can I. That's why that's included. But, but let's review that real quickly, the Peter episode. So our Lord's arrested. Peter's standing at the fire, warming himself, you know, and John's, he's, he's in, he's in, because he knows, he knows all the people in charge, the apostle John. And so Peter's standing there at the fire, warming himself, and a little girl, a servant girl, comes up. Not a man, not a big hunk of a man like this guy right here, right? Yeah, okay. But a, a little girl. You notice I didn't, I didn't point to myself there, you notice that. <laughs> a little servant girl says, you're a I'm going to paraphrase, you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? Now you would think that a man, a grown man like Peter, talking to a little servant girl, probably a teenager, would say, of course I am. And would you like to follow him too? But instead, he's ashamed. He says, I don't know him. And another little girl comes up and says the same thing. And he's ashamed. Okay. So all of this is included. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, we as a church have a choice. We either become relevant or we, we suffer. Okay. And I think this is one of the reasons why faithful Christianity in the United States continues to grow. Any questions about that? Okay. And you know, in school, if I may, in school, I remember, I, I've told this story before, but I was in third grade. And I suppose I was just young and didn't know any better. But on the other hand, um, my parents raised me faithfully as a Christian. And as a third grader, when I was asked around the table at school, we were going around talking about what we wanted to be when we grew up. And when I gave my answer, everybody was horrified. Because what was my answer? 
I want to be a pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. And everybody's horrified. It was like, you've got to be kidding. And so what I'm trying to say is, you know, even in school, our young kids, our young kids and our young adults in school are tempted to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? What I'm trying to say for those of you who are in school, you can say, you better believe I am. Would you like to be a follower too? I'll tell you about him and I'll take you to him. <laughs> That's how you talk. Back to the sheet. So that next paragraph, then to be a faither, that is to say to be a hanger on, on the Lord Jesus Christ, is the hard way of the wood, the nails, and the blood. The cross is the difference between the disciple and the crowds that tagged along with Jesus. Many hung around with Jesus and many followed him when it was fun and when it was really cool. You know, he's doing all these miracles, you know, oh man, what a great guy. But only a few disciples followed him to his, his death. Many today claim to be Christian, but only a handful take up his, his cross. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, notice this language. And this is, this is part of the scandal of Christianity, because in America, Christianity is not about denying yourself. In America, Christianity is about being or having your best life now, which means fulfilling yourself. Now, who did I just quote? Joel Osteen. Run from Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen, his, if you don't know who Joel Osteen is, God bless you, your innocence is blessedness. But if you're ever tempted to listen to Joel Osteen, run. He's always, he's always interviewed on Fox News. So those of you who follow these kinds of news channels, watch out, because he's always on Fox News. Don't listen to this guy. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. This is Christianity. And you have to take up your cross and you have to follow me. Whoever wants to save his life, that's American Christianity, by the way. Let's save our life. Let's preserve it at all costs. And so let's compromise and be relevant, whether it's the church at large or individual Christians. But Jesus says, if you want to do that, you're going to lose your life. But if you lose your life for me and for the gospel, you'll save it. Mark 8. So bottom line, love your life and you'll lose it forever. Lose your life now in the death of Jesus and you'll live forever. To follow Jesus means nothing less than to suffer and die with Jesus. Continuing with this theme then from Romans 5, rejoicing in our sufferings. I want to point out some helpful remarks by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and you have his dates there. Notice the date in which he died. Do you see that? What's going on at that particular time? World War II and it's about over. Okay, World War II. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. I'm reading again on page two. He was a German pastor and for confessing Jesus and for his participation in a failed attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler, he was imprisoned. I disagree with his, his doing this. I don't think he should have done this, but nonetheless he did. But he was imprisoned and he was hung from the gallows at the Flossenburg concentration camp on April 8, 1945. Now I quote from pages 100 and 101 because I think this is relevant and helpful for all of us. His book, The Cost of Discipleship. Bottom of page two. Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. Bingo, bingo, bingo. Now again, just so we're clear, you're not searching it out. <laughs> In other words, you're not purposely doing things 
to suffer. See the distinction? God will give it to you in His time and in His way. But you don't seek it out and you don't purposely try to get it. No, no, no. You don't seek it out. You, God will give, when, when God wants to, you to suffer, He'll give it to you. Yeah. Okay, right. But you see the distinction here? All right, now why was that? Let's just briefly talk about that. Um, I brought a marker. Keep in mind that the medieval church, I'm speaking in general now to make my point. And this will help you understand why there was a reformation in the 1500s. So when I say the medieval church, I'm talking like from 800 A.D. all the way up to 1500 A.D. So we're talking centuries. So for centuries, Jesus was primarily preached and taught in this way. And it's not wrong, but it was primary and fundamental that Jesus is this. Okay, And it's not wrong, because you read Peter's epistles, and especially his first epistle, 1 Peter, Peter deals with Christians who are suffering for being Christian. And see, the more you listen to Kuhlman, and the more that Kuhlman quotes the, the New Testament, the more you're beginning to realize that the more you read the New Testament, it's about this theme. Christians who suffer and have to be helped. Okay, sorry. So, um, for centuries, Jesus is primarily taught and preached as example to follow. And in, that's what you're talking about here. So I have to suffer like he did, right? And this was manifested in various ways, okay? Rarely, however, but this is true. This is a biblical model. Peter says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, and you Christians are going to suffer too. Get ready for it. It's coming. But the primary thing in Scripture about Jesus is this. Gift. His death for your salvation. Make sense? That's the gift. Okay? Now that got, that got diminished for centuries in the church. This would get preached, but not that often. This was primary. And so people then, faith became, what do I have to do? Versus, what do I need to receive or be given? See the distinction? Then all of a sudden you got this guy that's in Wittenberg, Germany, and he reads his New Testament and starts to be an Old Testament. He was an Old Testament scholar primarily, knew his Hebrew by heart, uh, translated all of the Bible from Hebrew to German, from Greek to German. In any event, then we discover that this is primary and that this flows out of gift. Okay? So I wanted to make that... Okay? So it's not wrong to preach Jesus as example to follow. It's not wrong at all, but it's not primary. Primary is gift for salvation. Does that make sense? All right, back to Bonhoeffer. The disciple is not above his master. Matthew 10. Following Christ means a passive passion or suffering. Suffering because we have to suffer. That is why Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Page 3. And one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. That was Peter's crisis. That was his big spiritual crisis when he denied Jesus. By the way, do you remember 
Jesus, before Peter denied him, do you remember Jesus said, Peter, I'm praying for you. I'm paraphrasing. You all know it. I'm praying for you. Why? Because Satan's going to try and sift you like wheat. Okay, then Peter sinned, denied. Then what did Jesus do? He restored Peter. He forgave him. And so just to piggyback on this, I've spent a lot of time on it, but I hope this is edifying for you. So how many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. When you read John's Gospel, the ending of John's Gospel, how many times does Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? <laughs> Three times. <laughs> That's on purpose. And what's interesting is Jesus asks him the first time, and Peter says, yes, you know I love you, Lord. Jesus says, good, then go feed my sheep or tend to my lambs. And then he asks him second, do you love me? Well, of course, Lord. Then the third time, well, good grief, you know I do. I'm paraphrasing. But he restored Peter. And again, that is all in Scripture, his sin and his restoration as gift for us. Because if, Peter, if that can be given to Peter, so it can be given to you. And you need to trust that. Now back to page three. Let's go to that next paragraph where it says discipleship. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it's a joy. Remember Matthew 5? and a token of his grace. The acts of the early Christian martyrs are full of evidence which shows how Christ transfigures for his own the hour of their mortal agony by granting them the unspeakable assurance of his presence. Who's he referring to here in the Bible? Acts, in the book of Acts. Stephen is stoned to death. Let's look at it. You got your Bibles? Let's look at it. I've talked enough. Let's actually look at it. Go to Acts chapter, I think it's chapter 5, I think. No, maybe it's 9. Acts 8 or 9. If I'm in the wrong chapters, help me out. Acts 7. Acts 7. We'll start at verse 54. So you're looking up Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read that sentence again from Bonhoeffer. The acts of the early Christian martyrs are full of evidence which shows how Christ transfigures for his own the hour of their mortal agony by granting them the unspeakable assurance of his presence. Are you in Acts 7? Okay, verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious. They heard Stephen's sermon. They gnashed their teeth at him. No, they grind their teeth. You ever grind your teeth when you're asleep? You do that for a long time, you lose your teeth. In any event... Stephen, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up to heaven and he sees the glory of God and who? Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later be Paul, now notice while they were stoning him, verse 59, Stephen prays. And notice he prays like who? This is, a, this, is a, this is using Jesus as example. He prays like Jesus did when Jesus was crucified. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. How did Jesus pray? Father, into your hands I commend my... Remember that? And then fell on his knees and he cries out and he prays like Jesus again. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. Interesting, he didn't die, fell asleep. Christians fall asleep. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why? Because death's been conquered. The grave's been conquered. I am the resurrection and life, Jesus said. So for Christians, death is simply asleep. That's sometimes then, I'm getting carried away here this morning, and I haven't had that much coffee. Um, there are sometimes when I preach a funeral sermon, and at the end of the funeral sermon, I'll say, all right, now let's pray, let's go out to the cemetery, and let's, let's tuck so-and-so into their bed, pull up the covers, tuck them into bed, and say goodnight. And then on resurrection day, they're going to be awakened from their sleep. And Jesus is going to say, wake up, sleepyhead, time to get up. Christians only talk like that. Now, do you see what Bonhoeffer's talking about here? That's a, that's a biblical example. Okay, It may happen to you. You may be able to see, like Stephen did, if this happens to you. Let's continue on page three. I'll take a couple more minutes. Look at the next uh, paragraph on the morning. On the very morning of Bonhoeffer's execution, Bonhoeffer led a service for the Christian prisoners, and he preached a sermon on 1 Peter 1. I just mentioned 1 Peter earlier. He writes to Christians who are suffering. 1 Peter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When the service ended, he was led away by two SS officers, and before taking off his prison clothes, he knelt on the floor and prayed. He prayed again at the place of his execution. The only witness, and remember, he's not like I would be. I would be, you just wait, I'm coming after you. He didn't do any of that. Jesus didn't. Okay? He prayed again at the place of execution. The only witness to his execution wrote the following, quote, In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Well, according to Romans 5, the goal and purpose of suffering is to produce endurance in believers. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, I'm a keyboardist, okay? Maybe some of you are guitar players like Liam, okay? But I've never met any guitar player or a keyboardist, a decent one, that is to say, who doesn't have deep calluses on his fingers. He's looking at his fingers. <laughs> As any guitar player can tell you, the strings cut into your fingers so deeply that they produce painful blisters and sores before one can play well. The trick is to keep on playing through the pain. Similarly, if you're a long-distance runner, you know this too. You have to run through the, the pain. In the same way, disciples of Jesus are disciplined in the way of the cross. Disciples of Jesus are taught to pray, to praise and give thanks through what? Through pain and persecution, through hardship and death. You remember that at one time Peter wanted none of this. He didn't want a suffering and dying Jesus. And he too did not want to suffer and die, but such thinking was Satan's thinking, as Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Patient endurance is the prerequisite then of character. Character is the condition of having been tested. Why, why don't people have character anymore? They've never been tested. Deep water runs in what? Deep channels. And deep channels are etched by slow, patient, process of erosion. People with character suffer deeply. Shallow suffering produces shallow character. That explains the church in America. You picking up what I'm throwing down? Why is the church so, so shallow? And so what's the Lord going to teach us? 
You picking them on Thumbdown? What's he trying to teach us as we're beginning to see suffering in this country for being a Christian? Character, perseverance, hope. Let me finish this. Shallow suffering produces shallow character, confession without a backbone. Deep Christian character is produced through long and patient suffering by relying on nothing but God's grace, clinging to nothing but God's promises, knowing nothing but Christ crucified. That kind of character, the character of Christ, nailed to the Good Friday cross by faith, brings eternal hope, as Paul says in Romans 5. This is not shallow, smile, God loves you, wishful thinking that passes off as pop Christianity. Instead, it's a Christ Jesus crucified for you hope that will not fail you. This is not hope in spite of suffering. It is hope in and through suffering. It is a hope that will not fail, even though the doctors, the specialists, and medicines fail. It's a hope that will not fail, even though your investments and bank accounts fail, even though friends and family fail, even though everything around us fails. I'm here to tell you, God will not disappoint you because he's put a down payment, as Romans 5 says. He's put a down payment or deposit on our lives. And what is it? His love poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit in our baptisms. So brothers and sisters, we have God's love in Christ Jesus. His love is a ruthless seeking love that stops at nothing to win us. It's a love that sought us when we didn't seek him. <coughs> Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His is a reckless love that gave his only son as the atoning sacrifice for the ungodly, for those who hated him, despised him, rejected him, nailed him to the tree. <coughs> his is a reconciling love that makes friends out of his enemies, that makes peace when there is no peace. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, Romans 5. And so then we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces what? Character. And character produces what? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Boy, I hope this was helpful for you. I really do. We're going to continue. Uh, we'll slug through some more. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father...